This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Gospel according to John 11, John 11, 1 to 6, 17 to 27, and 32 to 45. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. 
So today we'll be digging into the text a little bit and discovering that perhaps an important figure in this story has been obscured, a female figure. And I can't really take much credit here because I'm leaning on the scholarship of New Testament PhD candidate Elizabeth Schrader and her story and research as told by Diana Butler Bass, a respected scholar and theologian in her own right. And if you've heard some of this before, it's worth hearing again. And if you haven't, buckle up. <laughs> Diana, in a, Diana, in a talk that she gave uh, last summer at the Wild Goose Festival, started out saying, let, you, let me tell you the story of my friend Elizabeth Schrader, a PhD student at Duke University who's working on a doctorate in New Testament studies. Years ago, Elizabeth, her nickname is Libby, was living in New York City where she was a singer-songwriter in the pop scene there. And so, I didn't know this, I looked up her background a little bit, I discovered that she is open for the likes of Rusted Root and Jewel, pretty good, and her song Sweet When You Wanna Be was featured on the 2006 season finale of Gilmore Girls. Not bad, right, not bad. Anybody remember that season finale? <laughs> Me neither, but, but good show. So keep this in mind, right, that she had a real career going as a musician, as the story unfolds here. Diana continues, Libby is a cradle Episcopalian with a very lively faith life. She adores the church and loves liturgy. And one day, about 12 years ago, she walked into a church garden in New York City to escape some of the noise and the chaos of the city. And as she's sitting there praying in this church garden, she hears a voice that says, follow Mary Magdalene. Okay. Well, Libby usually doesn't hear voices uh, like many of us when she's sitting somewhere praying. <laughs> and so she was a little startled. Three days later, she wrote a song about this. It's called Magdalene, and it became the title of her 2011 album. And so she wrote this incredible song about Mary Magdalene, which is interesting in its own right, but then something deeper started nagging at her. And she thought, well, I don't think I was called just to write a song. I think I need to learn more. And so here she is, a budding singer-songwriter in New York City, and she thought, where do I learn more about the Bible? So she called up a local seminary, General Theological Seminary, which is the Episcopalian seminary there in New York, and says, I need to learn more about Mary Magdalene. How do I do that? Now imagine you're in the admissions department at a seminary, and you get a call, you know, how do I learn more about the Bible? Well, unsurprisingly, the answer came, well, you could enroll as a student here. And if you wanted, you could earn a degree, maybe a master's degree in the New Testament, if you like. And she said, yes, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. Who of us hasn't been there? <laughs> and so Libby signed up for the New Testament program there at the seminary, where she studied with a wonderful New Testament, New Testament professor who taught her Greek and Coptic and Aramaic and all the stuff she needed to be a New Testament scholar including how to translate the New Testament. And so she was off to the races as a 
master student in New Testament. And just think of that, right? Here she was opening for Jewel, having a song on the Gilmore Girls. I mean, who doesn't love Lorelai and Rory? And now she's becoming a legitimate Bible nerd. Well, as she did her studies, Diana relays, Libby couldn't get Mary Magdalene off her mind. And so when it came to writing her final paper for her master's degree, she asked her professor if she could focus that paper on John chapter 11, our chapter this morning, and Mary Magdalene. You might say, but Mary Magdalene's not in our story. Stay tuned. <laughs> and the professor said, absolutely. And the professor then said, if, uh, well, the professor said, do you know that these texts have recently become digitized, that is, the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. And so if you want to study Mary Magdalene, I want you to look at the earliest possible New Testament texts. And so Libby looked at Papyrus 66, which is the oldest and most complete manuscript that we have of the Gospel of John. It's dated around the year 200, so the beginning of the 3rd century. And Diana Bass says, now something interesting happens when you put a new set of eyes on an old text. Papyrus 66 had been sitting in a library for a very long time, partly because in the past you would have to go in person to one of these manuscripts in order to read it, often some archive or library somewhere. This one happens to be at the Bibliotheca Bodmerania in Geneva, Switzerland. But here Libby was sitting at a library in New York City. And now these texts have become digitized. And so in a way, it came to her. And Diana Butler Bass says, this is a historic moment, really, in New Testament studies. Now any one of us can have access to texts that in the past could only be seen by people if they had a lot of money, a lot of degrees, or the ability to do a lot of travel. Or all three. And so Libby is sitting in the library looking at the text and reading the first verse of our text here in John chapter 11. And it's in Greek, of course. And as she reads, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Mary. Hmm. And Libby said, What? That's not what my English Bible says. My English Bible says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister, Martha. But the Greek text, the oldest Greek text in the world we have for this gospel, doesn't say that. The oldest Greek text in the world speaks of Mary and his sister, Mary. There are two Marys in the verse, and so Libby said, What the heck is going on here? And so she started digging into the text, zooming in on it, trying to see what she could as she was scanning this ancient manuscript. And lo and behold, she noticed something that apparently no New Testament scholar had ever really focused on or noticed. And that is, in the text where it had those two Marys, the village of Mary and his sister Mary, the text actually had been changed. In Greek, the word Mary is basically spelled like Maria, in English, M-A-R-I-A, and the letter I is the Greek letter iota, iota, and where the lips is kind of a straight up and down line, and Libby could see by doing textual analysis that the iota here had been changed 
to the letters th or theta in Greek. They've been superimposed over the iota. Somebody at some point in time had gone in over the original handwriting and actually changed the second Mary to Martha. And not only had that person changed the second Mary to Martha, they changed the way it comes out in English as well. They changed, because it said initially, the village of Mary and his sister Mary, but it became changed to say Mary and her sister Martha. So not only was Mary changed to Martha, but his was changed to her to sort of make sense of that change. So the pronoun was changed as well. And Diana Bass says, admittedly, the original text is a little confusing and not maybe the best sentence, but it's almost like the fact that they were heightening that Lazarus has this sister Mary, perhaps by repeating her name. They lived in this village together, and Mary is Lazarus' sister, and yet someone at some point changed it to say Mary and her sister Martha. Well, Libby sat in the library with all of this, and it came thundering at her, the realization that sometime in the 4th century, so 100 or so years later after this text was written, someone had altered the oldest text that we have of the Gospel of John and split Mary into two. Mary became Mary and Martha. And she went through the whole manuscript of John 11, in 12, and lo and behold, the editor had gone in and at every single place had changed the moment uh, where you read Martha in English and it had originally said Mary. The editor made all those changes. And so the story becomes a story about Lazarus and the resurrection and his two lovely sisters, Mary and Martha. And you might say, haven't we heard of Mary and Martha elsewhere? We have in Luke chapter 10. And remember, Luke is a gospel that was written earlier than John. And so this, what Elizabeth Schrader surmises is that the Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 are two different people unrelated to the Mary or the Mary and Martha here in John 11. There's no mention for one thing of Lazarus in Luke 11. So there really is a Mary and Martha in Luke 11, Luke 10. And so perhaps this is some editor's attempt to harmonize the Gospels. Someone in the fourth century thought the editor or thought the writer of John didn't have great uh, Greek and went into there to fix it. And Diana Butler Bass says he fixed it so good that we've been telling the wrong story ever since. Every pronoun is changed. Every singular sister is changed to the plural sisters. And so Libby proved that in Papyrus 66, this fiddling around with the text did indeed occur. Now, finding this, says Diana Bass, as a master's degree student, when you've just barely learned Greek, is a pretty amazing discovery. And so she wrote her master's thesis on it. And it was so interesting as a master's thesis that Harvard Divinity School found out about it, and they said, can we borrow from your master's thesis, which we find so interesting, and publish it as an article? And so here's this brand new New Testament student who gets her very first professional article published in the Harvard Biblical Review. Not too bad. Not too bad. It's no Gilmore Girls, but it's not bad. And from there, other scholars began to notice what she was doing 
including the Nestle Allen Translation Committee of the Greek New Testament, an organization located in Germany. And these are the guardians of the Greek New Testament. I've got one right here. Which you're free to thumb through later. Don't test me on how old my Greek is now, <laughs> so many years after seminary. Um, but they heard about this, and they are about as stuffy as you can imagine. <laughs> They're basically a bunch of very old German guys who are entrusted with making sure that the Bibles we all have in our own language are as close as possible translations of the Greek manuscripts. And so they asked Libby to come to Germany and present her research and findings to them. So she went and did that, and they listened to her for a couple of days and listened to all the evidence she's compiled. And at the end, they say, well, we might need to change something here. That's not a small thing. When those folks are listening and paying attention and taking you seriously, that is no small thing. And so other people have begun to do research and extend her work and so on. And something I found interesting was that it's not just this manuscript that she found that had this discrepancy. Also of note was that Tertullian, a church historian, church father, so to speak, unfortunately one of the most misogynistic of the ancient church fathers, he wrote a fair bit of commentary on this text in John chapter 11, and he writes again around 200, about the same time as this manuscript. And commenting on this chapter, he says, Mary confessing him, Jesus, to be the Son of God. Mary confessing him, Jesus, to be the Son of God. Think of this. In our translations, it's Martha who says this. Jesus says, as we read, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And in our text, he asked this of Martha. And Martha responds, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one who's coming into the world. This is one of the most important lines in the whole Gospel of John. And Tertullian said that it was Mary who said this. He never mentions Martha, which makes you wonder if the copy of the Gospel of John that Tertullian had reflects the unchanged version. And then there's also this, uh, if you recall in our passage in chapter, John chapter 11, it says that Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And Mary stays home because she's too upset to face Jesus. Well, Egeria, a 4th century pilgrim to the Holy Land, writes in her diary, and this is one of the most important diaries we have from the ancient world, from an ancient Christian. She writes about her pilgrimage group there in the 4th century, getting, arriving to the church in the place where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, ran out to meet the Lord. Mary running out to meet the Lord. Not Martha. And so in Egeria's diary, there's no mention of Martha. Tertullian doesn't mention Martha. In both of these stories, this story, both of these texts, the story is also a story about Mary. And so here's what we're invited to conclude. John 11 might be a story about Lazarus and one woman, one sister, Mary. Diana then says, the most provocative question then is this, why did this editor split Mary into two? Maybe the editor just didn't like John's Greek, and so he fixed it in a way that made sense to him, or maybe, again, as we said, he's trying to harmonize with the Gospel of Luke. And so maybe that person had benign motives, 
or maybe not. Now, in our text in John, we have one of the two what's called Christological confessions of Jesus. That's theological terminology for someone acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Christological confession. The second one happens in John. The first one happens, it was recorded by the three other Gospels, called the Synoptic Gospels, because there's similarities. Does anyone remember who gives that Christological confession in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? It's Peter. It's Peter, yes. Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Who am I? And Peter says, You are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The other Christological confession is here in our chapter in the Gospel of John. And until this point, it has belonged to a minor character named Martha, who we didn't have much background about. Jesus raises her brother from the dead, and they have this conversation, and then she says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Almost the exact same words that Peter uttered in the other Gospels. And then Martha, Martha disappears from history. Diana says, unimportant, unremembered, who is this? But if it is Mary who shows up here in John 11, she is not an unremembered Mary. Not just one among a plethora of Marys. This Mary has long been suspected of being the other Mary, Mary Magdalene. Is it really true, she asks, that the, the other Christological confession of the New Testament comes from the person of Mary Magdalene? That the Gospel of John, is it really true that the Gospel of John gives the most important statement in the entirety of the New Testament, not to a man, but to a woman? And to a really important woman who will show up later in John's Gospel as the first witness to the resurrection. And you can sort of see how these two stories would work together, because in John 11, our chapter, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And who is there? But in this understanding, Mary Magdalene. And at that resurrection, she confesses that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And then you go just 10 chapters later to John 21, the end of his gospel, and who is it that shows up at the grave? Who is it that's the first person to witness to the risen Lord? Mary Magdalene. She's there in the garden, and she confuses him, right? With the garden. But Jesus turns to her and says, Mary. And she says, Lord. So the symmetry to having her confess Jesus as Lord at the resurrection of her brother Lazarus, and then being the first one to witness to the resurrection of Jesus, is pretty powerful. So now as I'm reading this and kind of having my mind blown, I thought, wait a minute. Not so fast. Mary Magdalene, isn't she from a small fishing town in Galilee on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Magdalene? I've been there. How could she be Mary from Bethany? And so I tweeted that to Diana Butler Bass. <laughs> well, she was gracious enough to reply with some helpful research. And it turns out there's an important debate going on also right now about where Mary Magdalene is actually from. Now, if you go to 
the Holy Land there in Galilee. You go to the little village called Magdala on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the, the little church there, Church to Mary Magdalene. And a nice tourist guide will say to you, this is the place where Mary Magdalene is from. But there's a problem with that. This village wasn't known as Magdala in the first century. That's something they don't tell you on the tour. <laughs> and nobody's quite sure where that village would be if there was a village called Magdala in the first century, which it's not clear that there was. And so there's good evidence to suggest that Mary Magdalene is from somewhere else, and this text begins to suggest that maybe she is from Bethany. You remember Bethany near Jerusalem in Judea, so it's to the south, Galilee to the north. And so Schrader, Elizabeth Schrader, says perhaps when we call her Mary Magdalene, it's not referring to her as Mary from Magdala, it's rather a title or an honorific. The word Magdala in Aramaic means tower. Tower. And that begins to give us a fuller picture. Right? Recall in the synoptics, Jesus and Peter have a discussion. Peter makes his confession of who Jesus is, and Jesus, as a result, says, You are the rock. And here in the Gospel of John, Mary and Jesus have a conversation, and Mary, too, utters a Christological confession, and she comes to be known as Mary the Tower. So between these two confessions, are we looking at an argument in the early church? Right? Who has the most authority, Peter or Mary? And knowing the patriarchal beginnings of the church, it's not hard to see why things were slanted in Peter's favor. In 591, Pope Gregory conflated Mary Magdalene with the anonymous sinful woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, who was about to be stoned. And you remember Jesus steps in to intervene. And so the idea that Mary was a prostitute or a sex worker was introduced into the popular understanding, even though there is no, absolutely no scriptural or historical grounding for that. But what that did do was this, further erase an important female voice from the earliest beginnings of Christianity. And so it seems fitting now, even right now, during Women's History Month, to rediscover this and to find Mary once again. And so it could well be that the story, as John originally told it, has been hidden from our view. All those years ago, Mary uttered those words, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Diana says, when Libby and I got together and she told me of her research and the story of Mary's confessions, we were sitting in a Starbucks in Alexandria, Virginia. I started to cry and couldn't stop. She had just told me a story that I always intuited existed. When she told me the pieces and how they fit together, and as soon as she said, Mary, the tower, I said, I know. I know this to be true. This is the truest thing I have ever heard about the Gospels. And so Diana says, Mary is indeed the tower of faith. Our faith is the faith of that of a woman who would become the first person to announce and witness the resurrection. Mary the witness, Mary the tower, Mary the great, and she has been obscured 
from us. She has been hidden from us and she's been taken away from us for nearly 2,000 years. And then she says this, and this is important. She says, this is not a Dan Brown novel. <laughs> this is not a, you know, don't look for Tom Hanks or, you know, this is not a Dan Brown novel. This is the Nestle Allen Translation Committee of the Greek New Testament. This is some of the best scholars in the world. This is the Harvard Theological Review. And we are living, she says, in the moment of the most radical transformation in our understanding of the gospel accounts and who Jesus is and who had authority the beginnings of our faith tradition. It's not small stuff. And she closed her address at the Wild Goose with these words, what if this story of Mary hadn't been hidden? What if Mary and John 11 had not been split into two? What if we'd known about Mary the Tower all along? What kind of Christianity would we have if the faith hadn't only been based on, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church? What if we'd always known, Mary, you are the tower, and by this tower we all shall stand? So she says, I invite you to imagine the possibility that is opening before us. Never visible to our ancestors since that text was first altered more than a thousand years ago. What does that church look like? What does a Christianity of Mary the Tower look like? And what might that towering faith have to say to our world today? Good questions. We can maybe guess some of the answers, but not easy answers. But definitely worth pondering. So this was a lot, <laughs> I acknowledge, and please keep in mind, this is a working theory. If you want to say that was nice, but no thanks, great, but it was compelling enough to me that I thought it was worth bringing to all of you. And I want to close with a few of the lyrics from Elizabeth or Libby Schrader's song, Magdalene, remember, written back in 2011, after hearing a voice in a garden in years before she had done any of this research. She sings, I went to the garden of the Holy Virgin, Mary most pure, conceived without sin. I was down on my knees with the dirt on my skin, and I asked for the blessing of the Magdalene. There she came to me in a state of grace, bearing things to reveal in this earthly place, secret songs of the flesh like a hymn, like a holy hymn. Oh, I asked for the wisdom of the Magdalene. There's a picture hanging by my bathroom door. It's a vision of Our Lady, maybe virgin, maybe whore. Either way, there are roses flowing from her hands, that soft, sure blessing of the Magdalene. She's the one to reveal what the world couldn't know. She was close to Jesus' side. She was holy. She was whole. Covered up by the laws of the learned men. Oh, they all fear the power of the Magdalene. So I went to the garden of the Holy Virgin, ready now to see what I've been burying within. It was never sin at all. It was a deep amen. The long hidden knowledge of the Magdalene. I get chills reading this. I don't know, it's just me maybe. But I asked for the blessing of the Magdalene. We're looking for the blessing 
the mandolin. We're all aching for the blessing of the mandolin. Amen. Amen. Maybe so. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.